man, I just, uh, my name is Pastor Kanan, and uh, I just wanted to welcome those of you who are here to Pillar Church, and um, for those people who are at home who are sick or potentially sick or exposed to anything, know that we are praying for you. We prayed for you this morning, um, and we will continue to pray for you, for your healing, for your mental and emotional healing, uh, for your physical healing. Uh, know that God has not abandoned you or left you in your state for no good reason. Everything is redeemed in the kingdom. And so I uh, just want to acknowledge you guys and let y'all know what's going on. So um, some of you know, some of you don't know. So COVID is doing a, a job on this country right now. It's doing a job on churches. It's doing a job on us and, and, and people that we know. Um, I must have received um, a total of about 11 to 12 text messages from people who have been exposed or contracted COVID um, in and around this body. Um, and there was others that they knew of that they didn't tell me about. And so it's just, it's spreading, it's there, it's real. Um, pray and ask God what you should do and, and how you should respond to such a thing. Um, we want you to be safe and cared for. So listen to God and let him move and direct you and think about the, your brethren in the midst of it. I'm going to pray. And then, um, and then we're going to get right into this, to this word. <sighs> Father, I just want to thank you this morning for uh, giving me the privilege of being here because I almost wasn't here this morning either. But it is by your grace that you've spared myself and so many from the anxiety and the physical burden that comes with sickness There are so many people right now who are at home, online, watching, who have anxiety in their heart because of the fear of the unknown, not knowing how or what may come of their sickness. There are some who are just frustrated with having to be alone. having to isolate from people, which is so unnatural. Lord, would you visit them this morning? Would you pay special attention to them this morning? Would you descend on them this morning that they would feel your presence, your love, that they would hear a word that would encourage their soul and motivate them to change. Lord, I pray for those saints who are here this morning. As we have come to gather to sing praises and to hear your word, that you would descend on this place this morning. And that we would hear and love and serve and be changed as a result of the singing in the word of God. And Lord, I, I, I pray for those parents of, who have children who are sick and struggling. It is the most helpless feeling in the world to not be able to just straight heal your children and to watch them in pain or to watch them suffer or to watch them struggle. It hurts. It's hard, especially when they don't even have words to tell you what's wrong. 
Would you comfort those parents this morning? And would you bring healing to those children this morning? And then, Lord, ultimately, I pray that no matter what's going on inside or outside of this building, no matter what viruses or government conspiracies or whatever it is that everybody thinks is going on, is going on, I pray that you would get your glory, that you would be the name above all names, that the name of Jesus would be the thing that sticks to the people's ribs, and that they would sing praises to you. They'll come to know you and worship you as Lord, King, God, Savior, and lover of their soul. So, Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you guide us as we walk through your text? We give you all the praise, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Kanan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning, we're going to start a new series. It's really an old series that we're revisiting, and we have a new name for the second part of the series. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, we started a series in the book of Exodus. You can turn in your copy, to, in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus. Um, we started a series called Freedom from Oppression. And we walked through the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. And now we're getting ready to embark about a year later on another series starting in Exodus chapter 15. And we're calling this section of the, of the, the sermon series The Crucible which is the reformation of God's people through trial. And so if you would open in your copy of God's word to Exodus 15, uh, there are cross-references and there is a cross-reference sheet. The way you get that cross-reference sheet, if you're here this morning, is if you go to pillar.church, the website, you click on the events tab. On the events tab, you'll see August 8th. You click on August 8th and you'll see a little gray circle that says bulletin. And if you click on that circle, you will receive a PDF of today's cross-references as well as the song lyrics. So if you desire to hear the cross-references that I will uh, speak to, if you're here, that's how you get them. Pillar.Church, events, August 8th, uh, bulletin. It'll be right there. If you're online, if you look in the comments section, you should see uh, connect cards and you should also see cross-reference sheet and it's available for you too as well. So we're going to start this series called The Crucible, which is the reformation of God's people through trial. And I want to hearken our minds back to something. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, African men, women, and children were kidnapped, tricked, and otherwise stolen from their native West and North African homeland. They were chained and transported in Dutch, English, and Portuguese ships to the Americas for use which was mainly for an unpaid labor force. Taken from their homeland, they were oftentimes treated worse than their slave owner's dog. And these Africans fought to maintain their culture and identity in a strange new world. They were hungry, they were overlooked, often beaten, and the circumstances that they faced often drove them to despair itself. But there was a practice that they brought from their homeland to the Americas, a practice that they fought to keep, and as they were here, they further developed while they were in captivity, and it helped to give them spiritual fortitude. They sang. They sang songs to God. They sang about God. They sang to one another. 
They sang songs of hope. They sang songs of unity. They sang songs of freedom. They sang songs of protest. They sang songs of remembrance. They sang songs to testify to God's goodness. They sang songs to tell the old, old story of Jesus and the gospel. And these songs became known to us as something called Negro spirituals. They sang. You see, contrary to popular belief, these Africans who were brought to the Americas didn't learn Christianity from their slave masters. That's not true. Christianity actually spread through northern parts of West Africa before it went north to the European brothers. But we've got to remember, it's easy to forget what you know, where if you have a child and I take that child away from you and raise them in my culture, they've effectively been erased from their homeland. But there were little strands, little, little traditions, little customs that made it through, that continued and pressed on to this very day. These African slaves, they sang songs of trial and hardship, but they would also sing songs of reflection, of glory, and of victory. It's a practice foreign to many of us in America these days, but it shouldn't be. In fact, when I say the word they sang, what you don't hear, which you should hear, is a weapon in the arsenal of a Christian. But when I say the word sing, that's not the first thing that crosses through your ears. Song is power. It's truth spoken out loud. And it does something to the soul. If we neglect to sing songs of reflection, glory, and victory, we'll have little to hold on to emotionally to endure the times of trial and hardships that we are sure to go through. Song is power. Let me ask you this question. What do you do when you find yourself going through trial and hardship? What do you do right now, actively? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I tend to kind of just sit down and be in this like ever spiral of thinking through the worst case scenarios. I don't know if you empathize with that, but that's what I tend to do. I just sit there and I'm just thinking about how bad it is or how bad it's going to be. And I neglect the weapon of song in the midst of that. I submit to you that singing God's word should be a normal practice to you, and that for the majority of America, it is an underrated and underutilized weapon of spiritual war. To speak out loud God's truth is a dreadful weapon towards our spiritual enemy. To sing. So I want to encourage you this morning to sing songs, to sing loud, to sing boldly, to sing unashamedly, to sing because there's power in song. It's not just truth spoken, but it reframes your thinking. When you sing songs, you're reminding yourself over and over of what is true, over against the lies that Satan desires you believe, and over against the lies that you chose to believe and that you formulated yourself. Songs remind us that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because God's staff and his rod, they comfort me. Right? Psalm 23, 4. Sing. Last week, we were indicted by God from 
the book of Micah, of forgetfulness. Where, where we went to God asking him, where is he? Because we see all these horrible issues going around in our community and the problems in this world, biological, human, and, and everything. This is problems everywhere, psychological, there's problems, there's issues going on in the world. And as we walk our streets, we see a bunch of horrible things happening and we indict God as if God's doing nothing about it. Remember, I, I walked through the city and I saw hurt, I saw, I saw homelessness, I saw brokenness, I saw, I saw gang violence, I saw all this stuff, and I'm wondering, God, where are you, right? But then what does God do in the passage? He indicts me, and he says, no, I have a case against you. Instead of you bringing your case to me, I heard you, now I have a case against you. And he reminds us, he says, I sent Moses, I sent Miriam, I sent Aaron, I sent Balaam. To what? To do what? To represent me here. Because I accused God of abandoning the city, and he reminded us, I didn't abandon the daggone thing. I sent you to the city with the wonderful message of the gospel. I didn't abandon it. Mount up. I've equipped you with my word and my truth. Go, therefore, and proclaim. One of the ways we do it is through song. This morning... We're going to use song to remember so that God can no longer indict us of forgetfulness. We're going to try to absorb the first 13 verses of Exodus chapter 15, which is a song from people who have been separated from their homeland. And they're embarking on a treacherous journey. It's real easy to see how those African slaves adopted the same practice as these Israelites here that have just been freed from Egyptian bondage. Because when you're in the middle of hard times, you have no idea how long the season will last. And we need truth to ring from our ears and from our, from our lips to our ears. And so they're going to sing. They're going to sing so they can further their spiritual fortitude and endure these hardships that are to come. Look at Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Stop there. When you read these verses, take them in for all they're worth. Those verses are full of substance and richness that we need to remember. Look at verse 2 of Exodus chapter 15, especially this verse. I want you to notice something from the text in your copy of God's Word. Look at it. The Lord is my God. I mean, my strength. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Y'all see that? He is my God. It's human nature to take ownership over something that has saved you or something that you are proud of, something that you desire now to represent. You start to take ownership of those things. Some of y'all have a favorite restaurant that you like to go to. What do you call it? My spot. Some of y'all have a favorite coffee you like to drink. What do you call it? My coffee. This is what you do. 
Some of y'all have a favorite sports team. None of y'all play for that team, but you call it my team. You take ownership over the things that you desire to represent. You take ownership over the things that you love. You take ownership over the things that have served you that you in here, all of a sudden, the Israelites start their song off by saying, this is my God. He is my song. He is my Savior. He's mine, 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 mine. Why? Because they just endured some hardship, and God did something for them, to them, through them. And their disposition is shifting. It's changing. They're singing of my God. They're not just proud to be Israelites here. They're proud to be God's people in this passage. They're, they're excited to be God's people in this passage. Like that's what they're amped about, that I get to be God's people. Let me ask you this question. Does that reflect you? Because oftentimes it doesn't reflect us. I wish that we would cease being ashamed of telling people about my God and your God. It's really easy to sing songs of praise to God when you're a private, when you're alone, when you're isolated from other people. But when you're in the public arena, could you say what the Israelites say here? This is my God. I have history with this God. This God knows my most intimate realities. I've cried in front of this God. I've confessed to this God. I've gotten on my knees and been utterly confused as to what to say during prayer with this God. This is no longer God, oh Lord, out there, way up in the heavens. No, it's intimate, it's imminent, it's mine. He's mine, my God now. When the opportunity arises, we can no longer be ashamed to call him my God. If he has done something for you, in you, through you, take ownership of that. The people of Israel do this. They call him my God and my song and my salvation, my Lord. Why? What is it that they've gone through? Well, notice what the adjectives they say about God. This will give you a sense of what they went through before I give you a history on what happened. Look at verse 1. They said, I will sing a song to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Descriptive term, right? God is to be, to be highly exalted. Even though he's high, he's still mine, imminent. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength. He must have shown some, some brawn in their past, right? He must have shown some muscle in their past. He says he's my song. What that means is that he's my joy. They find joy in him. He's become my salvation. Somehow he showed muscle, he's their joy, and he saved them. And then he says the Lord is a warrior. He fought on their behalf. What's the motivator for these opening words of adoration from the people of Israel? What could God have possibly have done to get those type of words spoken about him? This is what we found last year when we went through the Freedom from Oppression series. We found that back in, in Genesis chapter 46 through 50, that the people of Israel moved to Egypt under the leadership of Joseph. Joseph helps them to ex escape the, the pangs of famine that hit their land. After about a generation or so, Joseph and the Pharaoh that lifted him to the second in command both died. And Joseph's family is living in the Egyptian mainland. And a new Pharaoh rose to power. And this Pharaoh hated 
the Hebrew people. And it makes sense as to why. If you remember why, you do just a little bit of, of, of reading on this, you'll find that there, during these, this particular era, there was something called the Hyksos rulers that were ruling over particular areas in Egypt during this time. These Hyksos rulers were an Afro-Asianic Semitic people who were ruling in Egypt over the native Egyptians. And it's highly probable that one of these Hyksos rulers were on the throne when Joseph was imprisoned and thereby lifting him up, making it look like, or at least seemingly, that he was sympathetic to his Semitic counterparts. Here's a brother, comes from a similar native land as me. He's, he's obviously gifted by God, raised him up to the second in command. Now, meanwhile, you've got all these native Egyptians who are jealous and angry and heated because they are not sitting on their own throne. But that pharaoh dies, and Joseph dies, and a new pharaoh comes to power, and that new pharaoh is more than likely a native Egyptian. And he looks out at the, at the Hebraic people that live in his land, and now he's like, we got to get rid of them because they're running us in our own country. That's why he says, I hated them. This new pharaoh subjected these people of Israel to, to brutal oppression and subhuman living standards. If you have your cross-reference sheet, look what it says in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. This is what he subjected them, the Hebrew people to, this new pharaoh. Exodus 1, verse 8, it says, a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to the people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they'll multiply further. And when war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Verse 11. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Remesis as supply cities for Pharaoh. Verse 12. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread, that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Verse 13. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and in mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. That's the reality of these Israelites. Literally slaves in a foreign land and can do nothing about it. But that was only half of the problem. Not only was the government enslaving these Israelites physically, but the Israelites became enslaved to the Egyptian gods spiritually. In Exodus 12, 12, the Lord says, I am the Lord. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. The people of Israel were totally oppressed, both physically oppressed and spiritually oppressed, both. In, Exodus, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 4 and 5, it gives us a little description of what their bondage was like. This is what Ezekiel says about this particular time in Egypt. God says, say to them, this is what the Lord says. Ezekiel 20, verse 5 through 8. On that day I chose Israel. I swore an oath to the descendants of Jacob, of Jacob's house, and I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. What's he saying? While they were in Egypt, I revealed myself to my people. I showed them who I was. I'm here. I have not abandoned you. I'm right here. This is what he did. He showed himself to them. I swore to them, saying, 
I am the Lord your God. See the ownership? See how they reciprocated later? But God's doing it now. In the midst of their trials and turmoil, God's like, no, you're my God. I am your people. I got you. That's what he's promising his people. I got you. I'm here. I'll lie for you. Verse 6. On that day I swore to them, he said this, I will bring them out of the land of Egypt. And I had searched out a land for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, with beautiful, uh, the most beautiful of all lands. Verse 7. I also said to them this. This is what he also said to these people. Listen, listen. Throw away, each of you, the abhorrent things that you prize. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt anymore. I am the Lord your God. But what did they do? But they rebelled against me and were unwilling to listen to me. None of them threw away the abhorrent things that they prized, and they did not abandon the idols of Egypt. Joshua 24, 14 says the same thing, that these people were enslaved to these Egyptian gods. So they had the government oppressing them on one side physically. That is Egyptian gods oppressing them on another side spiritually. They are totally oppressed people. But God says, nah, it's about time I need to mount up and ride for my people. I need to free them from this oppression. And we've read about this freedom of oppression in something that we've called the Ten Plagues, where God goes to war against not only the Egyptian government, but he goes to war against the Egyptian gods. And he systematically and simultaneously disassembles both the governmental mystique of the Egyptian military and the Egyptian gods that they worship. Every single plague is correlated to another god that the Egyptians used to worship, including the god of Pharaoh that they were forced to worship. God would use Moses and his brother Aaron as a mouthpiece and a messenger in crushing these Egyptians. And eventually the people would get to the Red Sea as they tried to escape Israel. But now they get to the Red Sea and what happens? It's an uncrossable body of water. Where are they going to go? How are they going to get across it? Well, God splits the sea. You've read about this. You've heard about this. Again, Exodus 14. Look in your, in your copy of God's Word. You can flip right there. Exodus 14, verse 26 through 31. This is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses... Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on the chariots, and on the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth while the Egyptians were trying to escape from it. The Lord threw them into the sea. Verse 28, the water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. Look at verse 29. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Can you picture this in your mind's eye? They get to, there's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of ex-slaves running on the run on some of Harriet Tubman. They're running to freedom and they get to a body of water and they're like, yo, I know I saw God do some great things, but this is a big body of water. How do we get across it? I can't swim. I wasn't taught to do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. And God says, Moses, put the hand over that joint. And that joint says like this. Whoosh. People, you got to be kidding me. Like, I'll be sitting there bugging. I'll be like, yo, let's go. But that joint closes up. And there's a wall of water on both sides of them. Be there. Be in the text. Be there. And they're walking. 
I don't even know if they can see fish. I don't know what's in the Red Sea. But they're walking this water literally like an aquarium on both sides of them. And it's walking through dry ground. But then you start hearing the footsteps. The footsteps of the Egyptian army behind you, chasing you down to return you back to bondage. And God's like, now nah, put your hand back over that, Moses. Watch this. And it just eats them. Look at verse 30 of, of, of Exodus 14. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the dead on the seashore. Oh, it's a great thing to see your oppressor, your oppressor conquered. Verse 31. When Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. I want you to place yourself in the shoes of these people. You've been oppressed your whole life. You see this humongous battle between the God of Israel and Pharaoh and his, and his, and his, and his uh, government and these Egyptian gods. And God is just sending frogs and gnats and turning water, uh, lakes and rivers into blood. And, and he's killing the firstborn. And he, I mean, he just sending plague after plague. And you standing back watching this. And you know that all of this is happening in order to free you. There's tension in that. Who's going to win? Am I going to escape? Am I going to get free? And every time they get a little bit far, what does Moses do? He changes his mind, sends the army to get, go try to capture him back, right? So they keep getting free and unfree. And so this time's no different. They're looking at the water. The water splits. They're like, are we, are we going to get caught again? Or are we going to get through this? Or are we going to escape this thing? You see all this stuff happening, and you're the target of God's redemption and freedom. And as soon as you see the waters close back up, What's the first thing that should leave your mouth but songs of praise? Nothing else should come out of your lips but songs of praise because it's praiseworthy. And that's exactly what is happening in our text. They literally just saw the waters close, eating their oppressors up. And now they sit there and they go, oh, look, the dead, my old oppressor is on the seashore, gone. I will sing to the Lord. They're instructing us. God is teaching us the power of song. Remember what I did because we are fickle and so easily forget. We so easily forget what God has done. How could the people of Israel have been faithless at all during this season? They watch God slowly pick apart everything that the Egyptians stood for, and they were still faithless at times. Moses, after, after God gave Moses a miraculous sign to turn a staff into a snake, and his staff ate up all the other people's staffs, all this amazing stuff, but they're still doubting God? just like you and just like me. We forget the things that God has done. And we forget because we don't sing about them. We don't say the old, old story of what I was and what happened to me and how God redeemed. We don't sing. We're songless people. And because we're songless people, we have no memory of God's salvific work in our lives. We forget it and allow other people's songs to inundate our minds. Y'all know the lyrics to all kinds of songs, but you don't know any lyrics to a song, to the song of your life, of God's redemption and salvation of you. You haven't even written the lyrics of it. I haven't. If we sit back and we think hard enough, if we sit at our dining room table 
we think hard enough about what God has done for us, we'll find times where God fought for us, times that are song worthy. You'll find a time when God literally saves you from the grasp of the evil person. You'll find the time when God kept that car from sliding off that bridge. You'll find that time when you prayed to God, he gave you that really unique request. You'll find times when you prayed to God because you were sick and God kept you. You'll find the time when you asked God to get you out of that sticky situation that he did. You'll find the time where you needed the money to pay that one particular bill and God came through in the clutch. How about that time that God sent his son to die for your salvation? Guys, we got lyrics in the form of our lives that we can bellow and sing unto God all that he has done. They're singing about the past. Look what they did. Look what the Egyptians, look at them, they're washed up on the shore. They're remembering this and they're singing about it. What's your song? Like, honestly, sit back and think about what has God done for you? And is it worthy of praise? You see, God may not have saved you from some massive deal, right? But what about his common grace that he allows you? Hey, D, can we shut this door back here, Dirk? So, because I can think. What about God's common grace that he has done for you? The good times he allowed you to partake of. The breath in your lungs that you have every day. The shelter that you get to go back to tonight. Is that not song-worthy? You guys realize you're sitting in the comfort of the United States of America and nobody's going to bust in these doors and do nothing to us? Is that not song-worthy? God, you shield me, you protect me from my enemies. I get to sing praises to you in the comforts of your, of your home, of your, of your house of prayer. It's, praise them. It's, it's simple. you got a song in there to sing. And it's a shame we don't take time to consider more what God has done for us. And I think that's a good reason why many of us flake on God, because we have not taken time to solidify within our own hearts and minds what God has done. We easily flake on God because we don't take time to consider what God has done. It's not an American practice. It's not an American practice. We sing about everything else except for Jesus. We express everything else in our, in our thought process but appreciation for God. And we don't do it normatively. I know we do it when we come here and we get in our little prayer circles and we, oh, God, thank you for my week. And thank you for the, but it's not a normal thing in our lives for most of us. We're not, we're not thinking about it regularly. Therefore, we are godless in most of what we do. We move and act as if God is not real or he's not moving or he's not acting. We act like we're in control of something when we ain't in control of nothing. Guys, sing. Write your song and sing. Sit down at your table, reflect about what God has done, and remember his faithful love towards you. Love that you didn't deserve, but he gave you anyway. When you're in the midst of a hard season, and I know many of you are in the midst of a really hard season, 
emotionally hard, relationally hard, your job is hard, things are hard. Most of us are in the middle of something. We're all in the middle of something that humanity has never seen, at least not our generation, right? Do yourself a favor and gird your ability to endure by singing. Exodus 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Just let the words marinate. Look at it with me in your copy of God's word. It says, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing a song to the Lord. Declaration. That's that declaring it, right? Then he says, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider in the sea. What's he doing? Remembering the, the death of his oppressor, right? Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength, ownership, my song, my reason for joy. He has become my salvation. I am free. This is my God, nobody else's, only mine. He is mine, 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 mine. This isn't the God of the Egyptians. This is the God of the people of Israel. And all who have faith in his name, that's what they're saying, this is my God. And it says, I will praise him. He's my father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord, he's a warrior. They just saw a war. He's a warrior. The Lord is his name in case I forget. Because we forget. Look at verse 4. He remembers again the, the, the death of his oppressors. He says, I threw, he, he threw Pharaoh and his chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered over them. They sank into the depths like a stone. The Lord's, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up like a blast from your nostrils. The current, the current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Look at verse 9, though. But they also remember the trajectory or the, the, the heart's desire of their enemy. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. That's what their enemy was saying. I'm going to get them. I'm going to get you. Then look at verse 10. But you blew with your breath, Lord. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you amongst the gods? That's not a, just a, a, a shiny phrase. It's literal. They just watched Egyptians' gods, Egypt's gods, get manhandled. So they're like, who's like you? You did it easy. Who is like you amongst the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you led the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Guys, remember what God has redeemed you from, and that you, like them, deserve no redemption. What is he saving you from? What has he saved you from? What has he done for you? He is worthy of praise. What gods were you formerly worshiping? Besides yourself, obviously. We worship comfort. We worship preference. We worship all kinds of things. We don't want to give up anything at the expense of these particular things. And God's like, no, I'm going to set my people free from their bondage. No longer do they have to live in shame of what they were. I'm going to rescue them because they can't rescue themselves. 
And that's the posture. They can't rescue themselves. He says, I'm going to save them. And I want those words to seep into your soul, brothers and sisters. His faithful love will lead you, O his people. Those words in that verse are words for a hurting heart. That's what they're words for. They're words for a hurting heart. They're words for a weary soul. They're words for the forgotten, for those of you who feel like you're forgotten. And real quick on that, that's a lot of us up in here that feel like they're alone and forgotten. If we would just put our defenses down for a minute, we feel forgotten, a lot of us. That's just real. That's, just, that's United States 21st century reality. We feel forgotten by people. Those of us who are afraid, many of us, these are words of comfort for the relationally injured. A lot of us are relationally broken and injured. They're words for those who feel lost. And the question is, is that you? Because if it's you, God's words to his people, the people of Israel, are relevant for you now. He says, I will lead you people I have redeemed. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, people, I didn't abandon you. I'm here. Come to me, all you who are, have a hurting heart, a weary soul, feel forgotten, or afraid, or relationally injured, or lost, or burdened. Come to me, I will give you rest. Jesus says, come to him. If we could lay our pride down for a moment and admit the fact that we need something, we fit in a category around this list. Jesus is begging us, you are not forgotten. I'm begging you to come. Come to me. Acknowledge him. Speak to him. Be transparent with him. Talk to him. Matthew 12, 20 it says that Jesus says, he will not break a bruised reed. You know what that means? If you're hurting, he's not going to hurt you further. And he will not put out a smoldering wick. If you're a Christian here this morning, these scriptures are compelling us to reflect on the goodness of God and to sing praises to his name without reservation. They compel us to sing about Jesus' love for us. They compel us to sing about how he sacrificed his life for us, they compel us to sing about, about how God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us, Romans 5, 8, right? That's what it's compelling us to do. It's compelling us to sing about how God, how the person of Jesus conquered death by rising from the, from the grave on the third day for all those who believe. Guys, if you don't get juiced up about the fact that Jesus resurrected, do you even believe it? The dead rose for you. by grace through faith for you. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we have full forgiveness of our sins and full acceptance before God. If we would repent and believe, if we would turn and trust, it's not a, a math incantation, it's simple faith. Trusting in the person and work of Jesus alone. It's not that you have to do anything. The people of Israel did nothing to say, get saved. They simply were, and God said, I redeemed them from oppression. I got you. Trust me. Believe me. 
You put the blood on your doorpost. It's a sign of faith. And the angel of death passed over them. Believe. Believe. Really believe it. Salvation is real. If you're not a Christian this morning, and yet you identify with being weary, forgotten, lost, or afraid, I want you to hear what Jesus said and find hope in him alone. Because I know you've been searching for it. I know you've been looking for it in all the wrong places. You ain't never ain't finding Jack. Jesus says it's in him. You find peace for your weary soul in him. Go to him. Stop trying to endure this world alone. Just turn from what you know. Turn from what you, what you previously worshipped. Turn from your sin and your pride. And just turn unto Jesus in humility for a quick... And just say, Jesus, okay, I am lost. I do need you. I do need help. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to say. I never, I didn't grow up in Sunday school. I don't have the special words that all these Christian people say. It's cool. You ain't got to have those. Be transparent and authentic from your soul and say, Jesus, I'm lost. I need to be found. Will you save me? Will you help me? Will you guide me? Will you lead me? Would you redeem me like you did to the people of Israel? And like you seem to have done to all these people who claim to be believers in your name. Just be authentic with him. You know what he says? It's crazy. John 6, 37. Everyone who comes to him, he will not cast away. A bruised reed he will not break. Come, he's safe. Ask him to open your eyes and to turn you from your sin, to forgive you of your transgression, to confess you, and confess your weakness to him, confess your need to him. God, guys, what, what, what does this look like? <clears throat> what is your song going to look like? What's God done for you that you forgot and you taken for granted? I want to remind you what singing does. Singing gives you power to endure the hard times to come. Singing shapes your heart and mind around God's goodness. Singing strengthens your theology of God's love. Singing gives you power to cast off those negative thoughts to obey Christ because you're speaking truth out loud. Singing gives you perspective on God's undeserved kindness towards you. Romans 2.4. This is the power of song and this is why they sing. Let's redeem something from that, from that horrible transatlantic slave trade from the, from the 16th to 19th century. Let's take a page out of those strong and enduring slaves. Let's write our own spirituals and leave a legacy for our children and our children's children. Let's leave them a song and a testament of God's goodness towards you so that when you pass along, when you are dead and gone, they have a song about how God redeemed my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunt, my uncle. He's powerful to save. It's not just in holy writ. It is tangible in the life of my bloodline. Write the song and sing the song. Let's sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. He is our strength. He is our song, he is our warrior, and he is our salvation. Father, would you show us power through song in our lives? Starting now, we need power from, from truth and to be reminded by truth. And so would you combine our experience on this earth with your word and will we 
author authentic songs, like the song, authentic songs about how we thought you were going to abandon us and about how hard it is and about how much anxiety we really have and about how much lostness we truly are. We don't know what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. We write all that out, but then we keep on living and we get to say, but you, but God. Lord, you redeemed. Lord, you saved. Lord, you came through. Lord, you gave me perspective. Lord, you, you did something. And then, Lord, will we sing that song? Will we sing it to our grandkids? Will we sing it to our children? When we find no shame in lifting our voice, Lord, we don't got to have the good notes. <laughs> we got to have a singing voice. We don't have to have any of that. We've got to have truth coming from our lips. That's all we need. When we sing like we believe what you have done is true, tell us, remind us of our story so that we can create a song for you. And we can say you are highly exalted. You are strong. You are a warrior. You are our salvation. You are nothing to be messed with. You're my God. And that we would represent you well. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us a song to sing in the first place. May it be a song of redemption in your power and how we depended on it for salvation. Lord, be glorified. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name.